0: Adversaries are relentless, and they're only getting smarter, faster, and more sophisticated. Knowing their game is the only way to beat them. That's why we're here. Learn what it takes to protect against even the most sophisticated attacks. Welcome to the Adversary Universe podcast. Welcome, everyone. This is Christian Rodriguez, field CTO of the Americas. You are listening to the CrowdStrike Adversary Universe podcast. And today we have a special episode that focuses on, of course, adversaries and their tradecraft and all the bad things that we're doing and how we're stopping them. But more importantly, the verticals that they're impacting. Today, we're gonna focus on healthcare and some of the challenges that we're seeing within the healthcare space. We know that healthcare as a whole is faced with some very unique challenges and we're gonna spend a bit of time understanding what those challenges are. And for today's episode, we're going to have a special guest. And so today's guest has been here with CrowdStrike for quite some time. I'll let him introduce himself. But uh, today joining me is none other than our director of our healthcare program here at CrowdStrike, Mr. Dennis Egan. Dennis, how are you today?
1: I'm doing very well, Christian. I can't tell you how happy I am to be talking to you again. After you left me, I wasn't sure we'd be doing this. And I, it would be remiss of me not to mention that as I started with CrowdStrike six years ago, building out our healthcare program. I did have a partner in crime. You did. His name was Christian Rodriguez, <laughs> and uh, that's right. Interestingly enough, I don't know if you're related.
0: Oh uh, yeah, yeah. We yeah, had you know. some
1: really good times. We had some great times together.
0: My Delpho ganger. No, I do remember those days. A fantastic opportunity here at Crouchesback to really help customers in the healthcare space, right? With some very interesting challenges that were tied to patients and tied to lives. And I know that Dennis, that you personally are very passionate about the healthcare space and the impact of adversary tradecraft as it relates to the healthcare industry. And so maybe you could spend a few minutes explaining some of your observations. And I know a lot of executives reach out to you concerned about you know, the latest and greatest threats, what we're doing to ultimately prevent those threats and so forth. But give me a, a high level overview on some of the things that you've observed within healthcare that are very meaningful to the mission that you're building and you have built within the healthcare industry.
1: I usually do make a point to tell people, uh, having lived the patient experience as a caregiver, a caregiver that actually dealt with cancer multiple years of dealing with the entire process and the life cycle of recovery, foundationally changed my life. But it is something that grounds me every day and makes me realize that what makes healthcare uniquely different is that people can die. Outcomes can be impacted by the work that's being done. And people that are in healthcare are a special breed. They're not necessarily going to make the big bucks in the healthcare system. So everyone has a why, I personally have a why, but I, you know, honestly, when it comes to it, healthcare has a very unique set of challenges that are outside just the landscape of what adversaries happen to be doing. The financial distress, the unbelievable staffing pressures, the lack of ability to obtain meaningful cyber insurance. These issues compounded with the fact that if lives are on the line, you better believe that hospitals will pay the ransom. The bad guys know this. And they're pervasively vulnerable. They have so many things connected. Their core business is saving lives. So the idea, they don't necessarily get to operate the way other companies do because the patient has to come first.
0: Yep, absolutely. And they do. Would you say then, that you mentioned the concept of being understaffed. Most hospitals are challenged with the right skill sets to support larger operations. What are your healthcare providers coming to you with respect to the attacks that they're observing or the largest concerns when it comes to campaigns that we're tracking?
1: You know, you really have to go back a little bit in time and remember the world flipped on its ear with the pandemic. When everybody was staying home, when everybody went to work from home, hospitals still had to operate. The doctors and the nurses still had to come in. And the people that support those doctors and nurses, the the reality of the situation, they had to, on a dime, change their routes to market. The things that they had to innovate, things that would have taken years, were actually innovated in weeks and months. And if you think about that kind of dynamic change that was imposed on healthcare, the reality is, and again, when you're trying to build out a triage center, as one of my customers did in their parking lot to basically do COVID treatments, the reality is, yes, there are corners that, that obviously get left on the cutting room floor. When you kind of think through what it is that a hospital has to deal with now, and again, there's only about 5,800 hospitals in the country. 68% of them are governed by about less than 407 healthcare systems. Their rate of m is 40%. They're bringing together things that were not necessarily even intended to come together at such a breakneck speed that it's very hard for a security practitioner to keep up with all the gaps. And there's gaps everywhere. Go back five years ago, we could blame Sally in accounting for clicking on something she shouldn't have. We could tell everybody that it was customer awareness training. But in today's world, a healthcare system has to worry about adversaries coming in over clinical systems that are not protected. They have to worry about their viral transport systems being weaponized against them. They have to assume that adversaries have already passed their guard. And when you go back to, it's not just about the people, it's about having the people, having the ability to actually do the job, 24 by 7, 365. It's about the ability not just to take an event, detect it and triage it, but they literally have to be able to return back to a healthy state faster than an adversary can do harm. And if you think about that problem of speed, it's actually beyond most hospitals to do on their own. They need help.
0: They do need help. With patients' lives attached to systems, I know that the majority of conversations I've had with CISOs across a variety of industries, but naturally healthcare, the concerns are fairly consistent. We see a lot of healthcare organizations basically assessing every vulnerability with a higher level of scrutiny, because naturally those vulnerabilities could lead to a system being exploited. Their concerns about lateral movement are really, I think a lot of concerns are focused on systems that are a legacy that they can't necessarily change out. Or there may be systems that don't support certain types of traditional defenses, or they have to rely on older defenses and models to secure those systems appropriately. And it, that kind of you know, has historically kept them up at night. What are you seeing today when a CISO calls you and they say, you know, here's my problem. Describe what that is. And with respect to even recent attacks, what do you think is the largest threat to healthcare organization right now?
1: Everybody remembers if you were in a hospital system, getting the Tri-Seal alert. And at the time it was Riot and Conti. And, you know, at the time, That was an adversary group we would call Wizard Spider, and everybody got put on notice that they got to be ready to work on paper for four days. Because what had happened was adversaries were able to get into an environment and essentially take them completely offline, their phones, their emails, completely bring them back to paper in a little less than four hours. And and that was three years ago. You go from those attacks to then fast forward, you basically saw. Hive spider, they got very loud. They actually figured out a way to, to move in through the managed service provider community. And again, not only were they actually able to get into one account on a one-to-one basis, they were able to get in 50 to one. And again, you then fast forward to just this last year and you have some of the largest hospital disruptions ever. Yeah. And we're talking Definitely. hundreds of hospitals, hundreds of hospitals over a small handful of systems that again... Now, all of a sudden, hypervisors and shared backups are now in scope because, again, adversaries had figured out to really do total destruction and and obviously disrupt operations, they realized that they could do it at the hypervisor level. And uh, all of a sudden, if you think through that attack pass, it wasn't just taking over necessarily a PC, taking out your ability to uh, use your Mac. You know, they were literally disrupting operations in a way that had never been seen before.
0: So naturally, a lot of that sentiment is focused on like a lot, some ransomware campaigns, right? Again, very destructive. We saw that. We saw most hospitals were very concerned about ransomware campaigns. You mentioned the concept of, you know, Sally and accounting, right? Click on the
1: on the wrong thing. And, <laughs> <laughs> and again, Sally's yeah. taken an unfair share of the burden because yeah, the reality right. is today's spear phishing mm-hmm. can look like your FedEx.
0: Yeah, It looks very legitimate. It can
1: look like your manifest that you're expecting. Mm -hmm. And again, would fool anybody because in some cases they're actually coming in, spoofing those very entities. And so the broader issue is you have to assume that the adversary has already passed your guard. So when you think about controls, if I think that an adversary has already potentially passed my guard, A, what started out as visibility, then turned into actionability. Can I see it? Can I stop it? Is there a way to meaningfully do things and if you draw that a little bit forward, not just do things, but do things faster than an adversary can do harm. Okay. And, and if you think about it from like a that NIST framework of you know, protect, detect, respond, recover, if you think through this, you have to get that entire workflow essentially less than what we currently observe in adversaries' first lateral movement. You can really create kind of a framework-based approach in speed to say, well, man, if if they're that fast from initial beachhead to first lateral move, I need to be able to not just see it, but actionably prevent them from obviously doing something that's more damaging. No.
0: Okay. So so you said a lot there. So let's go back to Sally post-click, right? And compromise, right? Or let's go back (laughs) to, you know, you mentioned the concept of destruction. So we saw a very interesting campaign, which we're still tracking where again, hypervisor style attacks are basically very successful if an adversary can bypass things like MFA and jump boxes and they get access to maybe, let's just say like an ESX server Yeah. that is exposed on the internet and there's some really bad things that could happen. Once those elevated privileges are are attained, they basically have access to manipulating a lot of those underlying hosts, right? And basically all that bad stuff and you know ransomware campaigns we've seen as a result of that very destructive or locking up systems that have been there running for quite some time. So they're a lot less ephemeral than you know, what you would get in a cloud provider, for example. So that's, those are campaigns that have been historically focused on destruction. But what about now, let's talk about extortion campaigns, right? Because we did see like Royal Spider, Royal Spider is an adversary that we tracked and have been tracking. They named a, a hospital that they sold two terabytes worth of data from, and they are now kind of, you know, they're putting a very big focus on these extortion campaigns right and we saw even earlier this year there was a group of adversaries that tried to extort the hospital the hospital said no and they ultimately revealed a bunch of patient health information we're talking about like MRI results and x-rays and you know things that were tied to mammogram pictures a mammogram pictures exactly correct and so when you're getting a phone call from a ciso you know post an article that focuses on this tradecraft right like what is your response right? Because naturally, I know what we do, right? And I love what we do. And I'm very passionate. We we put a very big spotlight on this type of trade craft. We have some great technology around it. But, you know, let's talk about like, what do CISOs, what can they do just overall to even approach it? You, you mentioned this concept of stopping this lateral movement, but there's got to be certain controls and policies and compensating controls that can be implemented that you can at least have a conversation about with the CISO of a healthcare provider, right? So what does that look like? Oh,
1: absolutely. Yeah. I mean, God, it it all goes back, you know, those basic, you know, the top five cyst controls, like do you know your environment? The basic hygiene Mm -hmm. is increasingly just not being done to the degree that it is. And again, if you think about why that is, I might be able to tell you that there's, I mean, again, think about some of the exotic things we're seeing. You might have a very specific pump that is internet connected, but can't run a sensor. And, but you know that crazy things are happening there, Mm -hmm. but also realize too, there's a patient hooked up to that. So the idea that they're gonna stop it, contain—they're gonna watch it. But they—if you—if you, if you kind of think through this uh, dynamic, that the reality is because patient care comes first, they can't even necessarily do all the things that a normal company might be able to do because of the patient impact. So yeah, you always have to ground the reality in in kind of the state of the union, which is, hey, do they actually have the hygiene knocked out? Do they have? continuous monitoring of their environment? Do they know what is going on? Would they have the ability to detect it or have it hunted? Would they then be able to action it?
0: These are questions you're asking the CISO, right? When he he or she comes to you and says, here's my challenge, you're asking, do you have an understanding of what your environment looks like and the hygiene of it essentially, right? Mm -hmm. And then where are you protected, right? Maybe from- whether it's an EDR or AV or, you know, where do you have that visibility and control? And then like, where do you not have that? Is that is that right?
1: It always comes back to, you know, can I whitelist it? Can I blacklist it? Can I get more information? Now, whether I do that at the endpoint or I do that at the network, the reality is people have consistent controls in place, but they very often don't have the granularity that they need. And even when they have the granularity and you know exactly what it is and what kind of pump it is, do you know exactly where it is? to actually make a risk-based decision to do something. And, and if you think about that totality of problem set, it explains the challenge that healthcare has in actually how do they genuinely stop these adversaries from doing harm in an environment. Now, you had mentioned the double extortion tactic, which it's interesting. You kind of have to realize these adversary groups are in fact software companies. They they literally are. that They themselves are managing... Their innovations. They, sure. in fact, sure. in some cases have call centers set up to actually take inbound calls. When you think through this ransomware as a service economy, and it's, and you say ransomware as a service, but there's a, let's use the Sally example. Sally's going to hate us by the end of this call. Absolutely. You yeah. have Master Dropper, <laughs> you have Master Dropper as a service. All they do is get the lore in. And then you have another party, Prudential, harvesting as a service. All they're doing, coming in. Taking out the credentials, he's selling that those credentials to set up an Airbnb to sell to someone else to come in and do whatever they're going to do. So it's not necessarily you know a guy in a, in a guy fox mask. Yeah, these are infrastructures that themselves have affiliates.
0: Yeah, it's like the multi level marketing of of cyber Absolutely. crime. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. I've, I've definitely seen that. I've definitely seen that. It's very effective and it also allows them to monetize different levels of the attack a lot more effectively, right? And so, you know, selling that access, like you said, selling the service itself to the type of binary they're using or just basically selling the tradecraft we've seen also, right? Where adversaries are basically posting some of their their tradecraft and their techniques and saying, "Here's, you know, yeah. go ahead and walk in through the front door" or like there's a whole access broker. You know, narrative that we've done on a previous episode that focuses on that—the way that adversaries are kind of walking in through the front door with legitimate credentials and then emulating legitimate user activity or admin activity—and they're just living within your environment for as long as possible, stealing data and doing—you know—stealing intellectual property and, of course, doing whatever their ultimate final objectives are. Right? So we're yeah. So I think that's, that's yeah. It is it is pretty broad the ecosystem that's being built out. Right.
1: Oh, it's incredible, and everyone was looking at you know Vault Titan. And Microsoft announced that, hey, people are getting hands-on keyboard access to the trusted Microsoft infrastructure right off of, you know, basically right off of the VPN. And again, when you kind of think through this stuff, right? Like people right now are on Shodan knowing that there's 2,500 file transfer systems that are internet-facing and not in a DMZ. That right now, someone needs to patch those because someone can remote execute. And again, go back six months. In France, people saw that there were hundreds of hypervisors that were still on, you know, version six. They couldn't believe, I mean, hey, ah, where are all these out-of-date hypervisors? But this is the gift that keeps on giving because adversaries have figured out there's so many doors, right? Mm-hmm. There's so many mm-hmm. doors in. How do they actually do it? How do they actually do it at a scale that's enough to monetize, but not so much to get shut down? And Hive is a great example of this. You get loud, You we've seen what the arm of the government can do Right, We've seen what some of these op- operations can do when it comes to actually taking an adversary out, but they have to be enough to be profitable. They have to do it in a way that's good enough to maintain their infrastructures, but not so good that they find themselves you know, having sanctions and offensive operations against them. And that, that is the interesting dynamic. So you had mentioned extortion only. So they're experimenting right now. You can literally see when you kind of look at their tactics, they're trying to figure out where the price elasticity is. Yeah. What is the price point that actually gets paid? Because pays if out. I yeah. impact patient care, I'm almost assured going to get paid. But if I actually just, you know, if I press the executives with these kinds of non-patient impacting tactics, what is that? What is that elasticity, right? How much yeah. can they get paid? And we're seeing that experimentation literally happen in real time. Yeah, Because truthfully, yeah. if they can just get the patient records, that in and of itself is a lucrative market. Just selling the patient records, if you think about it, how much data do I need to synthetically set up a person? Yeah. And what you'll find is, is that almost all of it is in the patient information.
0: So I know there's a group that we've been tracking called the CARICURT team. And yeah. the CARICURT team is actually is their second largest data extortion group out there from an e-crime perspective. And I know... We did some analysis, an interesting statistic that we found their campaigns and their targeted victims. The majority of their victims just in 2023 alone were healthcare providers accounting for over 23, almost 24% of their victims, right, in terms of verticals. And so it's an interesting shift and focus that these adversaries are successfully creating campaigns around healthcare. And there's got to be a reason why, right? So what would you say the reason is?
1: Oh, it's relatively safe. So think about it. We were coming off of the Ukraine war. So let's go back to that original story I'd shared. So everybody remembers Wizard Spider, Ryak and Conti. The Ukraine war happens. These groups actually started fighting amongst themselves. Everything from, you basically saw the players dissolved and ended up in other factions, in other groups. Some more pro-Russian, some more pro-Ukrainian, right? They're all doing bad things. But the reality here is they were leaking each other's tradecraft. Everybody knows about Lockbit because of just how prolific that's become. There have been two versions of it leaked on GitHub. And again, that's them fighting amongst themselves. It's really interesting. It's a really interesting dynamic to see how much this is being democratized in terms of the weapons of mass destruction that are available on the cutting room floor. Holiday Spider or the Dachshund group that was very famous from, they were doing these hypervisor attacks they were using Babooku. They were literally using stuff that hadn't been seen for years. They had just figured out a way to get access to it, do these smash and grab operations. And again, now we don't see them again for a little bit, but again, know that they're really trying to evade doing something that would cause that heavy hand to, to come their way. And so this is why you see that, you see a lot of rebranding. You see a lot of adversary groups rebranding their tradecraft. And again, it's all to protect their infrastructure, their money, and their resilience. You mentioned an interesting example
0: earlier about this pump, right? Or this system that could be potentially compromised. Let's walk through that scenario, right? You have a CISO reaches out to you. We already discussed about the concept of discovering all of your assets and understanding the hygiene, but let's talk worst case scenario, right? That same system is attached to patient. What are we looking at? What are the concerns that these CISOs are, are sharing with you? as it relates to those IoT?
1: These are real-world things where, you know, you could find malicious activity on something that is hooked up to a patient. That has and does happen. And when you think through that continuum, so what would we normally say about an asset? Like, in the normal world, we would think about it in terms of, hey, is it able to be contained? Now, there's multiple ways to do that, but in, in CrowdStrike world, if we're running on a device, we're basically containing it to remediate it. But if you think through this continuum of biomed and clinical, you basically have this world of, you know, and I think the the number that was shared with me just recently, I mean, their exposure to IoT and IOMT is absolutely incredible. Yeah. So their IT footprint, especially now that adversaries, I mean, again, we talk about adversaries, you know, knowing how to use the cloud and weaponizing pivoting off of the cloud.
0: Yeah, cloud-conscious adversaries. Yeah, exactly.
1: Absolutely. But there's a very interesting thing in healthcare that the bad guys are using web code, web code designed to interoperate with these very same systems. So Mm. again, the attack surface is now so much greener than the traditional places they've been, you know, again, go back before 2006, you couldn't even find a CISO at a hospital. Mm -hmm. I mean, if you really just think about How much maturity has happened in the last, you know, again, we're talking in a 20-year period of time, or a little less than 20 years. This has the entire world that they're responsible for in terms of the landscape, the possible targets, and every one of them has to make a risk calculation. What's the frequency and magnitude of something happening? Is that something Mm -hmm. happening, a breach that for years had to be a cost of doing business, OCR, Required the reporting of everything that was patient impacting. So it created a dynamic where it wasn't until patient care was impacted that all of a sudden the money started coming in. And now the landscape is simply pivoting from, you know, hey, guess what? We got really good at doing what we do, where we run. But think about a hospital. A hospital has lots of things, IoT, IOMT. Again, we talked about the hypervisors, right? We talked about the shared storage. We talk about these internet uh, connected appliances. You know, we're going to be increasingly talking now about SaaS applications. Yeah, we're going to exactly. be talking about vectors that they never conceived. Yeah, exactly. Now being a point of entry to do harm.
0: Yeah, like never part of their program, right? In terms of yeah. understanding their attack surface, right? So that's, and I, that's and you challenge.
1: know I got to remember the right, the naming conventions are important. When Microsoft provided its advisor around, and we, I think we're using Vanguard Panda. But if you talk about an adversarial ability to actually just get into the Microsoft fabric and work in trust, well, guess what? Now we're very interestingly moving the entire surface to identity because now it's the service accounts themselves that will be the only observable way to know. And without meaningful continuous monitoring, if you think about where the puck's going, and again, it goes with the landscape. And the reality is identity becomes a place for continuous monitoring and actionability. And yep. everything becomes conditional access. The, the entire world comes, you know what I mean? So if you think about that kill chain, hey, can we, move, can we move back on the kill chain and really do meaningful things to prevent initial access?
0: You know, it's an interesting point. You talk about conditional access. I think that lends itself to even the whole zero trust framework narrative. I know that CISA just released their framework on zero trust a few months ago. There's a lot of companies kind of trying to work towards that. If we go back to the original discussion that we were opening with, with respect to the CISO conversation and identifying all their assets and the hygiene and, and understanding the risk of, again, like IOT being, or the implications of IOT being compromised, attached to patients. This podcast in itself is very much focused on understanding the tradecraft of adversaries and how they impact varying industries, how do you think healthcare can ultimately leverage intelligence against these threats that they're seeing? What are you seeing in terms of intelligence consumption on the healthcare side?
1: We have customers that, again, like if you think about if you want to build a bench of talent, one of the best ways to do it is to have a meaningful threat intelligence program. The other interesting, and again, I think this is interesting too, Now, of all the hierarchy of needs, can they afford to spend their money there? But if you're trying to maintain and retain talent, there is no better way than to build a threat intelligence-based program into your uh, program.
0: Into your it, it really
1: yeah. does. Every customer, to a degree, is getting the benefit that everything CrowdStrike does is adversary center. Everything we do is designed to stop a breach. And again, we now broadly define stopping a breach, We're, you know, Originally, it was stopping a mega breach. Now we're talking about stopping destructive attacks, crypto mining. We're talking about stopping them from stealing your data, destroying your data. We want to keep them from doing what they want to do. And again, to do that, it's about being adversary centric. It's about having visibility. It's about having continuous monitoring, being able to action. And because we go back to that original concept, these programs need help. I think the best hands are our own. Our ability to provide our Falcon Complete program is what over half of our customers are now doing in healthcare. And they're doing it, not because they can't do the job, but doing the job 24 hours a day, 365, and really dealing with the revolving door issues and the cyber risk issues. Our ability to do this at scale uh, is probably the proudest uh, achievement we've had in, in in our vertical.
0: Yeah, well, adversaries don't sleep. And neither do we, right? And that's basically our mantra here. So, Dennis, I want to thank you very much for coming on to this episode. Really appreciate the time, and you're very insightful as much as uh, I would probably say otherwise if we were in person sitting at a bar somewhere. <laughs> so, one more question What's the one thing you'd like to share with the audience about healthcare and intelligence and the
1: impact of that? I'll leave you with this healthcare is critical infrastructure. For every prospect that is listening to this CrowdStrike is able to help. We want to help, but we need you to ask. And what we're doing in healthcare is something that's very special. It's very unique. And uh, we want to make sure we're doing everything we can to help you do your mission. And we can't do it alone. This is a shared responsibility that we need to work on together.
0: Folks, that was Dennis Egan, our Director of Healthcare Services for CrowdStrike. And I also wanted to bring into this amazing conversation an expert in the field of healthcare. He actually joins us as one of the executive healthcare strategists here at CrowdStrike, Mr. Drex DeFord. We've had some really great conversations around the impact of cyber threats against healthcare, some of the challenges that we see in healthcare. You have a fantastic background when it comes to understanding the challenges on cyber risk as it relates to healthcare. you know, Before we get too deep into it, do you mind just sharing with our listeners
2: kind of your background and some of your experiences? Sure, yeah, hey, thanks for having me first of all. So a little bit about my background, I'm a farm kid from Indiana, I didn't have money to go to college and I enlisted in the Air Force. And I went to school at night, finished my degree, and I happened to test into the computer communications career field as an enlisted guy. Finished my degree, was offered a commission as an Air Force officer, as a hospital administrator. So I wound up weirdly in the late 80s being a hospital administrator who knew something about information technology. There wasn't a CIO job at that point. And so I sort of accidentally inherited all of this stuff. I went from a small hospital to the Air Force School of Healthcare Sciences as kind of a deputy CIO, went to the University of Alabama, Birmingham and got a master's in health informatics and then ran one of our regions. So I had 14 hospitals across the Southern U.S., including a couple of Large medical centers. Uh, left there, went to one of our big medical centers at Travis Air Force Base as a CIO, and then Chief Technology Officer for Air Force, Air Force Health Worldwide Operations in DC before I retired. And along the way, I wound up deployed to Desert Shield, Desert Storm. You know, shot at and missed. Went back ten years later to do uh, Southern Watch and no fly zone enforcement uh, in Iraq. And uh, you know, again, came home all good, all together. But retired from the military and was offered the job at Scripps Health in San Diego as the CIO. So I was there for a few years and then Seattle Children's, the CIO for both the hospital and the research institute. And then Stewart Healthcare, which at the time was based in Boston, a for-profit integrated delivery network as the CIO. Then I did a startup with a friend. Did an independent consultant stint for a number of years. CrowdStrike was one of my clients. I helped uh, one of our good friends get CrowdStrike Healthcare started. And then two and a half years ago, kind of had this conversation of, would you consider coming to CrowdStrike and being an employee? You know, at that point, I was such a believer And what we do and our tech and the way it works and the people and the culture and all of the things about CrowdStrike that it was really for me just a no-brainer ultimately. The personal mission of better, faster, cheaper, safer, easier to access healthcare for patients and families is, you know, my personal mission statement. And it ties in very well to what we're doing at CrowdStrike Healthcare. So it was an easy transition for me to make. and, And we've had a great time making healthcare safer and safer over the last four or five years.
0: So so first of all, thank you for your service. Naturally, you know, like, of course, I think you're, I, I'm very always fascinated when you tell your story and, and some of your background. It's, it's a great honor, honestly, to, to have the conversation with you because Dennis and I ran the healthcare program for several years before I went in this role and some other roles in the fuel CTO organization. But maybe you can share for some of our listeners, this episode, again, very much focused on some of the challenges uh, that we see in healthcare, some of the threats that have been very much targeting healthcare extortion attacks, for example, hmm. share a little bit about what you've been seeing because you you're meeting with healthcare providers across the the country, right? So yeah. what, what is a common theme you're, you're running across right now on challenges?
2: Sure. I mean, acro- across the country really, and even internationally, now the industry business unit is kind of uh, you know, we're all over the place and you're right. There are definitely themes. I actually did a briefing for a board of directors of a big health system on Thursday, and we spend a lot of time talking about themes and they kind of boil down to, you know, the lack of skilled people. We just don't have enough cyber pros. And even within that concept of do we have enough people, there's a level of skill and specialization that's required. And just uh, we, we have a shortfall in general in cybersecurity, but definitely in healthcare. And then I think we have another challenge that's tied to that. All of these are kind of intermingled with each other, but The second one's really around being able to execute the fundamentals, the patching and the upgrades and standardization and a lot of the work that you and I know simpler makes better operations, but it also makes the world easier to secure too. So that dealing with the fundamentals is a challenge that gets to the technology and complexity issue in healthcare today. Lots of Internet of Medical Things equipment, lots of MA going on right now, lots of challenges just in general that make the environment incredibly complex. And then, you know, you sort of wrap around that a massive change in the threat landscape over the last few years. The adversaries that we're up against are much more like big tech companies. They're not... Yeah. Even though the, the stories in the newspaper always show some guy in a hoodie sitting in a basement somewhere, that is not the guy you're up against. Tons of specialization, lots of uh, negotiators who get paid on commission and, and folks who just spend their days, nights trying to figure out the new business plan to be able to hold healthcare hostage and make another handful of money. So, I mean, it, it all kind of wraps into those four categories, but it's complicated and none of them really stand alone. You know, it's interesting
0: you say the whole kind of obligatory uh, hooded hacker view that most organizations use for marketing or the media uses that kind of image. Right. Like uh, like a Mr. Robot-esque kind of look of someone in a hoodie. When to your point, a lot of the operations that we're seeing from these groups are they're very sophisticated. They're very well put together. Even when you look at the way that access brokers advertise the credentials that they're ultimately selling and whatever forums, the profiles that they set up on their respective victims are very detailed. They're very detailed when it comes to revenue, the types of permissions they have access to, the potential or likelihood of you successfully running an attack on, the, on that victim or target organization. And it shows that they're putting in a lot of effort on, on not only understanding the business, but also the value of the attack. And there's a lot of even economic input that's put into these advertisements. So I can only imagine, to your point, if healthcare is being so challenged with resources and you have a group or multiple groups just out there with a major focus on you i'm sure keeping up with evolving tradecraft is probably harder in an industry like healthcare because of the lack of resources i'm very curious though why such a lack of resources in healthcare specifically right because i've we've seen lack of resources across multiple industries but it seems to be very prevalent in healthcare
2: i think healthcare is a business in general is challenged. Most healthcare systems work on very small margins, one or two, 3%, you know, if that. A lot of this is just the structure of the healthcare system, the way that we file claims and our payers. Uh, The majority of care in the U.S. is provided by the government. So there's still, you know, Mm -hmm. Medicare and Medicaid. That's how, if you look at any given healthcare system, probably more than 50%, in some cases, 70 or 80%. Of All of their billing goes to the government, to Medicare or Medicaid, who have really restrictive controls on what they pay and how they pay, which means that a lot of the foundation for -for not-for-profit healthcare systems is built on philanthropy. And um, they have literally, they're called foundations. Uh, that is the fundraising arm of those organizations who, you know, most healthcare systems are kind of pillars in their community. They are it's literally also the rock that the city is built on. They depend on those health systems to be there when they need them. Uh, everybody knows that when they're sick, they can always count on the hospital to be there, the emergency room to be there. And ransomware really has kind of taken that away from us. It's taken that trust away in a lot of ways, right? Community starts to become really skeptical once an organization goes through a ransomware event, it has to send patients to other hospitals. There was a recent study that just came out of San Diego, those other hospitals are often overwhelmed when any one hospital in a community is hit by ransomware. The other hospitals are overwhelmed and have to Mm -hmm. start to restrict their services. And those donors to those foundations, they go through an additional few levels of sort of consideration about, is this a place I really want to donate my money. And that
0: is a real problem.
2: Yeah. That's a real problem for health systems who are counting on those donations to be able to run effectively and do innovation and do other things. So resources in general, pretty restricted in healthcare. I think when you, from a cyber perspective, when you add to the reality that we don't have enough cyber professionals, yeah, exactly. A lot of the really cool, sexy jobs are probably in other industries, you know, not necessarily healthcare. We've had a tendency to be a little bit of a laggard. Sure. Uh, it's it's a challenge. I mean, I think it's a challenge for us to get. We obviously have some really amazing people in healthcare. They are terrific, and they're very mo- motivated by the mission.
0: But the innovation is probably less on the cyber side. It's saying. tough to get the yeah. you know
2: the really really hardcore innovators who are looking for hmm. bleeding edge kinds of things. They're probably going to go to tech or something yeah. like that. Yeah,
0: because of the amount of federal involvement, you know, you mentioned Medicaid and Medicare and those programs that are very heavily regulated by the government. Do you see any type of legislation or, or healthcare, or, or rather, federal measures to improve cybersecurity programs? But then, would you consider then the healthcare industry or targeting of the healthcare industry a national security concern?
2: Let me take the last one first and loop me back <laughs> sure.
0: around if I forget. You <laughs> got it, you got I it. lose my place.
2: Uh, national security <laughs> concern. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, yeah. we are considered critical infrastructure in the U.S. in healthcare. In some cities like San Diego, you're fortunate enough to have three or four major health systems and multiples of hospitals in your community. If something happens to one hospital or a health system, there are others that you can go to. And in some cases, they might even be closer than the the hospital that you would normally go to. So the disruption isn't that severe. If you had a heart attack, you can still get to an emergency room that's close to you when you start to move out of the cities and into rural healthcare you wind up with a really serious situation if that small hospital that small 40 bed hospital in rural indiana is under attack and is shut down and diverting patients indiana montana kansas you might be 50 100 miles away from the next emergency room you know it is a life and death situation, um, Situation, especially not just for, you know, the individual, but imagine that there's a mass casualty or something happens and there's a lot of people that need medical care. It's a real challenge. Part of the reason, at least, that we got into this is that back in 2009, we did something called the American Recovery and Reinvestment Act, ARRA. was the first thing that President Obama did when he came into office. Obviously, a very bad economic downturn at the time. And part of the job of the government was to try to drive as much money into the economy as possible to get people reemployed. And so the government put $40 billion into incentives to deploy electronic health records. And over the course of the next five or six years, we went from 10% EHR penetration to 90% EHR penetration. Now the $40 billion was spent on electronic health record deployment, but there was no money specifically for cybersecurity. So we automated massively without a lot of thought about cybersecurity. At the same time, health systems, you know, business operations and clinical research operations said, we want to automate too. So they automated a lot of the rest of the system. Again, a lot of automation without cybersecurity. Coincidentally, also in 2009, Bitcoin was invented. And that, of course, is the tool that a lot of our adversaries use to be able to move money around without attribution. And in 2016, the first case of ransomware hit Hollywood Hospital in California. Hollywood Hospital paid the ransom. And the gold rush was on. And so mm. this is the innovation that you've seen since then that has really sort of created the at least some attribution, right, to the situation that we're in.
0: Sure. So kind of a ripple effect of this successful endeavor of a cyber attack catches wind, you know, other adversaries hear about it, and sure. all of a sudden healthcare is being targeted. And I'm sure, as as we mentioned earlier, where adversaries are getting and have become a lot smarter or a lot more involved when it comes to recon on their respective targets, they probably understand similarly the challenges that healthcare organizations are undergoing when it comes to resources, right? And the types of protections that they have in place.
2: Oh yeah, no, for sure. I mean, if you think about the adversaries that we're up against today, I said they look a lot like high-tech companies and they do. I mean, we know they have CEOs and CFOs, they have business development teams who are always coming up with new ways. Yeah. yeah, they have HR, yeah. I mean, they have employee yeah. of the month programs, they have help desks. You are the client, they refer to you as the client on the dark web when they are in the middle of a ransomware attack and they're uh, trying to help you figure out ways to pay your Bitcoin to get your data back. This is a very lucrative business, right? Yeah, well organized. <laughs> when there's a lucrative business, there's good organization, there's a lot of innovation, they put a lot of people into this research to make sure that they can find the right places who are most likely to pay as targets for ransomware data exfiltration all those things.
0: Got it. Okay. So let's go back to the first part of the question then, like what's your input on federal legislation to drive better programs within healthcare, right? Thanks. You know, obviously there's a lot of healthcare. (laughs) You're welcome.
2: (laughs) I appreciate you bringing me back around to that.
0: Yeah. So what's your, what's your thought on that and on government involvement?
2: So I'm involved in something called the Health Sector Coordinating Council. It's a government organization that is really kind of focused on doing just that. How do we make healthcare cybersecurity better on the cybersecurity working group inside of the health sector coordinating council there's a bunch of stuff if you google health sector coordinating council cybersecurity working group uh, you'll find a lot of the material a lot of tools that have been created to, for free help organizations mostly smaller organizations but big organizations use these tools too to help educate their own teams and educate their own organizations about cybersecurity there's lots of stuff there. So that's part of it. The challenge still though, comes down to, I feel like there's a lot of haves and a lot of have nots in healthcare. A lot of that is based on the size of the organization, but not always. Sometimes a hospital just finds itself in a great community with a great payer mix and they're able to actually do very, very well. So I think ultimately, just like that electronic health record, meaningful use program, where they pour dollars into the economy through an incentive program, a very well-structured incentive program to be able to get electronic health records deployed. There's something like that, that ultimately may, I hope, come out of the federal government that will be um, the same kind of program where there are grant dollars that are tied to some kind of a requirement that will help healthcare build a more solid, more reliable cybersecurity program across sure. the board. We're yeah. so interconnected with each other that a weakness kind of borne by one healthcare system is a weakness that's thrust upon everybody else in sure. that healthcare system that's connected to that organization. So, you know, we have to do better. And I think we're going to need the federal government's help, state government's help to ultimately improve the situation that we're in.
0: So what would be your advice to say, here's how you build a better program, right? Or at least look at these low-hanging fruit of capabilities to help your program mature.
2: First of all, I would say cybersecurity is a team sport. (laughs) And so if at the boardroom and inside of organizations, if we think of this as an information services or information technology problem or the cybersecurity teams problem, um, that indicates to me that you have a real problem and that culture is one that is the kind of culture that's ultimately going to get yourselves breached. You're going to more likely uh, have an exposure. And a lot of that is because you have folks who are sort of working outside of the standard work of the cybersecurity team. So they're doing software as a service. They're standing up cloud instances. They're doing things that wind up creating exposure that nobody who's responsible for guarding the organization knows about. And that's a real problem. And it is a challenge that we see sort of in the name of, I'm trying to get the work done um, that we see in organizations today. And so think of it as a team sport. Everyone needs to be involved, not only educated, but doing their part to make sure that they're protecting the organization.
0: Sure. No, that's fantastic. For my listeners, you're listening to Drex Deford. I just want to say thank you very much, Drex, for for coming on to this episode of the Adversary Universe podcast. We're really excited again to have your feedback. We'd love to welcome you back on another episode where we can dig a little deeper into some very specific attacks that we're seeing within healthcare. I know our listeners are going to really value the feedback that you're you're providing. I know you're always on the road too, meeting with major healthcare providers. And so anyone. Uh, is keeping abreast of some of our marketing initiatives across uh, the country. I'm sure you'll run across Drex at some point. Drex, really appreciate the time, really appreciate the feedback. Yeah, for uh, sure. Yeah, can't wait for for another deep dive session with you.
2: Yeah, my pleasure. Um, I'm looking forward to it too. Thanks for having me.
0: Thanks so much for listening to this episode. If you like what you're hearing, subscribe to our podcast and head over to crowdstrike.com forward slash adversaries to learn more about the many bad guys we track. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time on the Adversary Universe podcast. This is the Adversary Universe podcast.